0: Uh, Good morning again. Happy Easter to you. If you have your Bibles, we are going to take a break from the Gospel of Luke to start a new sermon series that should carry us into the summer and through part of the summer. I decided that I wanted to take a look at the uh, Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Um, Ten Commandments Lord's Prayer. That that may not seem like the most scintillating topic for a sermon series as you hear it. So uh, why did I decide to go in this direction? Well, a couple of reasons. First, uh, historically, you you may know this, the church has placed the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer at the center of its teaching ministry. I mean, pretty much all of the catechisms that have been constructed down throughout church history are are based on three things Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments. Uh, So historically, when Christians were asking the question, how do we teach the Bible to our children? Uh, What do new Christians need to know about Christianity? Their answers almost always included an emphasis on uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, You you may, oftentimes we use in our worship service the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is broken up into 52 Sundays. Of those 52, 11 of the 52 are devoted to the Ten Commandments. Or even maybe more significantly, our, our own Westminster Shorter Catechism. Of the 107 questions in Westminster, 42 of those are on the commandments. And that's, that kind of trend is true of catechisms in various traditions. There's always been an emphasis, emphasis on the commandments. Second reason why we should study them is because they are truly good. And they are ultimately delightful. I mean, isn't that what the psalmist says? At the very beginning of the Psalter, Psalm 1, verse 2. Oh, how I love your law. They, they are Your law is a delight to me. Um, I'm a man who delights in the law of the Lord. You say, who delights in rules and, and uh, you know, commandments? Well, the psalmist does. Uh, he understands. And this is one of the things we have to get across to our children. The commandments are not just rules. They're not just laws. They are, as I have printed there in the uh, bulletin, they're pathways of joy. The thou shalt and thou shalt nots of the Bible are not just laws. They are pathways to joy and uh, stability. C.S. Lewis used the illustration Uh, when he was talking about the commandments, he said, if if you're on a hike and you decide to take a shortcut as you're out and about and your shortcut leads you into a miry bog, you know, squishy, stinky, yucky, muck and mire and mess. He says, oh, how relieving it is, isn't it, to get out of that and to come back to the path because the path, the path is solid and firm. And that's how he describes the commandments. The, the commandments are the, the solid footing um, that, and I think in our day, a lot of people are are really, they're desiring something that is solid footing. You know, um, I mean, one of the guys who's reached a great deal of prominence, Jordan Peterson, not a Christian, but I mean, he's kind of taken the, the speaking circuit by storm, a professor of, I think, psychology up at uh, maybe the University of Toronto, somewhere up there, but I mean, he keeps going back and talking about the commandments and the Old Testament. He's not even a Christian, but a lot of young men just flock to Jordan Peterson because he's giving them something firm and definitive to, to work on and stand on. Um, and I think that's, that's what a lot of people need. A lot of people in our time are, feel adrift and rudderless. So the commandments, when the commandments are rightly understood, the commandments are the way for a happy and fruitful life. The commandments of God are as it were God's owner's manual. It's kind of his way of saying this is how you are you ought to live as a human being. And there are a number of different uh, other reasons, but hopefully that gives you just a little taste on why we're going to jump into this for uh, you know several weeks. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read all of the commandments today, but we're only going to focus on the prologue. This is an intro sermon, so... uh, You know, intro sermons tend to be a little boring, and my hope is that, at the very least, it's useful. (laughs) We're going for usefulness today. Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals. Nor the animal within your gate, sorry, the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And let me just read then how it concludes. I should have included, put this into the bulletin. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God to speak to us or we will die. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. How many laws are there in the United States of America? (laughs) You you may guess the answer. The answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, who recently came out with a book on the Ten Commandments, so you'll probably hear Kevin DeYoung quoted a few times uh, during the course of the sermon series. He writes that in 2010, an estimated 40,000 new laws were added at various levels throughout the country in 2010 alone. Um, in 2008, a House committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate the number of criminal offenses under federal law. And f- they responded five years later by saying they lacked sufficient manpower and resources to answer such a question. So I mean, literally, nobody knows how many laws there are in the United States of America. But God gives us ten. Ten. See, Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 introduces one of the most famous sections in the Bible, and actually one of the most important pieces of religious literature in the history of the world, the Ten Commandments. And yet, oddly enough, and you may not even, you may not know this, but oddly enough, nowhere in the Bible are they called the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? The way that the Bible refers to them, uh, three times it refers to them as the Ten Words, And uh, there's maybe several different reasons for that. You know, in Hebrew, the Hebrew Hebrew idiom for word can mean a complete English sentence. Or in this case, multiple English sentences. So, I mean, that, they would have understood that. But it's almost as if God is trying to, he's like, I want to distill. I want to boil down everything that is most important to you. And I will do it for you in ten words not in like this infinite number of red tape and, you know, uh, civil code, et cetera, et cetera, like the United States of America, but ten words. I'm going to summarize it. Uh, ten things that you must keep straight. If only it were, it were that easy, right? I would say that among Bible-believing Christians, there are, are a couple of, of stances or orientations we have toward the Ten Commandments. For some... Uh, I, I used to be one of these Christians. I didn't, I didn't even know the Ten Commandments for the first uh, 15 years of my Christian life. I was never taught them because I was told that they're really not for us. The Ten Commandments, oh, that's the Old Testament. That's Moses. It's all tied up in Israel and the Mosaic Covenant. That was then. None of it applies to us anymore. Anybody ever heard of or grew up with that kind of perspective? I guess, well, not many of us. A few of us did. That was our attitude. That was then sort of this is now. Now that Jesus has come, all of that has been kind of abrogated. One perspective. Well, the other, very other end of the spectrum, the entirely opposite approach, is you have a lot of Christians today who say what we really need is for America to get back to the Ten Commandments. That's what we need today. Go, we need to restore the Ten Commandments to its proper place in American life. Uh, maybe we will erect a monument to the Ten Commandments outside of a courthouse as a way to show the Judeo-Christian underpinnings of our legal system. Um, ever heard of that perspective? Yeah, a lot of us have. And in fact, wasn't it about 10 years ago there was a, a Ten Commandments fight here in Boise on a Ten Commandments monument in one of the parks? What park was that? at Julia Davis Park. And there was a big brouhaha. Um, That's a a very prominent perspective. How has our branch of the church, our our tiny little Reformed Presbyterian branch of the church, how have we regarded historically the Ten Commandments? Um, Well, what we have tended to do ever since John Calvin wrote his uh, Christian um, Institutes of Religion, 1536, Josh. I know you're visiting today, I promise. I never mentioned Calvin, but you happen to be here on the Sunday that I mentioned Calvin. I'm totally playing up to the Presbyterian Reform stereotype. Ever since Calvin wrote in his Institutes, he spoke about the threefold use of the law. And our branch of the church has ever since kind of followed, has said there's three principal ways, the law. Ought to be used. And when he talks about law, he's, he's talking about the moral law. He's not talking about the Israelite ceremonial law, all that governed religious purity and, uh, you know, if you, are you clean? Are you unclean? Can you come into the temple? Can you not come to the temple? All of that. Not that. Not all of the uh, sundry case law that covered Israel as a nation, but the moral law, as Calvin said, that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. There are three primary uses. For that law that we should consider, and so I didn't know a better way to preach the sermon, an intro sermon, but to go over that three threefold uh, use of the law. So that's what we're going to do today. First, the first use of the law, Calvin would say, and, and you know this sermon probably feels a little lectury because it is, but um, the first use of the law, Calvin said, is it's used as a mirror. The law, you hold up the law to yourself, and the law shows you just how sinful you are. And ultimately, it shows you how you need to flee to Jesus Christ for your salvation. So that's what Calvin said. Number one, the law is a mirror. It reflects to us the holy character of God, the character of the lawgiver. It mirrors to us the perfect righteousness of God. And then when we look into that mirror and see that reflection, we see ourselves and and we are supposed to say, oh my God, what a mess I am. Oh my God, what a sinner I am. Please, Lord, please have mercy upon me. You know, it's a diagnostic tool that convicts us of our sin. I think I told you this story before. Terribly, terribly sad story uh, that took place back in, I think it was about 2010 maybe. Stephen Curtis Chapman, one of the most popular figures in the Christian music industry living in Nashville. Well he and his wife had three biological children and they felt like the Lord, they thought the Lord was calling them to adopt more children. So they adopted three children from China and uh, their 17-year-old son one day was driving home in the family SUV, and as he was pulling into the driveway, uh, one of the, the Chinese daughters, I think she was aged four, she was so excited to see that her older brother had just come home, she ran out to greet him, and, um, and he hit her. He struck her with the SUV. In the family driveway... And and it turned out it was a, a you know fate, she was fatally wounded and she's lying there. I mean, which had to be, I mean, could anything be more horrific as a parent than to run out to the screams and to the cries? I can't imagine anything worse. Well, in in, in the middle of all of that chaos, Stephen Chris Chapman, he he runs out. He finds his daughter. He picks her up into his arms. He gathers her. He puts her into the car. He pulls out and he's headed off to the hospital, of course, to take her to be cared for. But before he did so, do you remember this? Before he did so, he rolls down the window and he looks at his son and he says, Will Franklin, your father loves you. Uh, he, I love you. And he responds to him with, um, you know, Will, Will Franklin was his middle name. Uh, he responds with this just, Tremendous outpouring of, of mercy. Like, I wish I could be that father. Don't you? Like, in, in the moment of the greatest panic of your life and the greatest sorrow in your life, to have the presence of mind to look at your son and respond to him with such tender compassion and mercy. It was exactly what the son needed to hear at that moment. Okay, the first use of the law doesn't respond that way. It does not respond that way. Uh, And uh, the first use of the law, if I could put it this way, is like the police officers arriving on the scene and they start interrogating you. You know, how many beers did you have before? Were you talking on your cell phone? Were you paying attention? What were you you doing? And they start pointing the finger and accusing and they start putting up the, the yellow tape and creating the crime scene. Um, That is the first use of the law, and that is how, in my opinion, much of the law functions in the Old Testament. So it's very significant that I read to you uh, what eighteen and nineteen at the end of this, because when the people receive the law, it's it's this fire and and fury and smoke and thunder, and everybody is terrified because it's like the law is pointing at you as you're a murderer. And what did the people say at that moment? They said, they come to Moses and then they say, Moses, we don't want that to ever happen again. Please, whatever, whatever happens, don't let God talk to us again. Um, you speak to us, not God speak to us. Because the law in its first use is, um, maybe i put it this way, it's like math. It is like math. It is cold, it is It is since since cold and calculating. It does not care about your feelings. The law does not care about your feelings. The law does not care about, quote-unquote, extenuating circumstances. It is not math graded on a curve. (laughs) It is straight and hard and cold and convicting in its first use. Uh, I'm not saying that God in the Old Testament is, by the way, uh, never that kind and merciful father. He is. But what I am saying is I think many times God and his use of the law in the Old Testament is that first use. So uh, going back to our Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, oh, one of the questions is, what is the summary of the Ten Commandments? How do you boil the Ten Commandments down? The Ten Commandments boils down God's moral law. Is there a way that we could boil it down any further? And the answer that it gives is Yes. The sum of the Ten Commandments is to do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, about 20 questions later in the Westminster Catechism, it asks a follow-up question. And that is, is any person able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Can anybody keep them? And the answer is no. No mere man No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Well, Calvin would say, you hold up the law as a mirror and you see daily, I am a lawbreaker. Um, Take something as simple as love, love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't even say that you're to love your neighbor more than yourself. Just love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Does, any of, does anybody do that? Nobody does that. Nobody even comes close to that. Like, I mean, imagine, imagine our community. If I pursued your needs and your best interests with the same level, level of vigor <laughs> that I pursue my own, <laughs> like nobody does that. Nobody even, the asymptote, you don't even get close to that asymptote. (laughs) Uh, Nobody does that. A pastor I know, um, he was telling a story. He was sitting down with a parishioner. Uh, They were having coffee together. And sometime during the course of the conversation, the parishioner said, you know, what our, she said, kind of that second view of um, what we really need in our country is for people to just go back to the Ten Commandments. We need people to, to uh, follow the Ten Commandments. And so he's got a lot more guts than I have. He, he asked her the question, do you obey the Ten Commandments? And her answer was, mm, yes. And what do you think his follow-up question was to that? He said, do you even know the commandments? <laughs> do you even know them? Because if you know them, the one thing that you should know is you do not obey them. Something even as simple as the golden rule. Uh, One other thing I want to say about the first use of the law, and it's something that Paul focuses on in in the book of Romans. He talks about how there is inside of every one of us this evil power that when we read a sign that says, do not enter, or when we come across a piece of wet pavement that says, stay off, there is this urge that rises up. Inside of us to do what? To you know, put our th- thumbprints into that wet pavement. Maybe carve our initials into it. Or hop the chain link fence. He says as soon as you give a human being a, a law. There is this power and, and urge. Primeval urge inside of us to break it. And what does he call that primeval urge? He calls that the power of sin. And he says and it's alive and, and work at every one of us. So there's a sense that when, when when God just simply gives us the 10 words, they incite us because of sin. I should say sin inside of us incites us to disobey those 10 words. Um, okay, I think that's all I want to say for the first use. Second use of the law. Calvin went on to refer to the second use of the law as the, the civil use, he, he said that the law is, is still used, it should be used by civil governments for the maintenance of the civil order. He said governments should use the law to restrain sin and evil in, in a society. Now back in his day, when you had this you know, confluence of church and state, I mean that that whole concept the, uh, that concept of the civil use of the law was a no-brainer wasn't it of course we of course it's the government's job to enforce every one of the 10 commandments which meant let's take medieval Europe where Calvin was living at the time so traditionally we speak about that there's two tablets of the law that there were two stone tablets that God inscribed the 10 commandments on And the first tablet of the law we think of is our responsibilities and duties towards God. So traditionally, that is commandments one through four. You know, no other gods before me. um, no, No idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. The Sabbath. All of those are inscribed on one tablet. And then five through ten, I won't go through all the rest of them, those are inscribed on the second tablet. Well, when you have a confluence of church and state in medieval Europe, of course it's the job of the government to enforce both the first and the second tablet of the law. And that's why you would have heresy trials. That's why People could be burned at the stake for blasphemy and so on and so forth. That any failure to fulfill the first tablet of the law was a punishable offense. Well, then what happens? America happens. <laughs> and we have, we have uh, uh, the United States of America, where we discover that no longer should there be a confluence of church and state. And so we will only, for the most part, legislate the second uh, tablet. Of the law. And for maybe, uh, I don't know, hundred years of our, our, of our history, 150 years of American history, kind of everybody agreed to that. Like, we could all sort of agree that, yeah, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't com- commit adultery. We, we should follow the second commandment, uh, the second tablet, and, go- and the government should enforce that. Um, so when people say today, well, we should bring back the Ten Commandments, they're kind of, they're saying, let's go back to that earlier way of doing things. The difficulty in doing so is when you dig a little deeper, you realize legislating, even the second tablet of the law, is very, very difficult. For instance, how do you legislate covetousness? How do you write a law that says, I'm not going to covet my neighbor's donkey? Um, I mean, isn't like, isn't all of marketing today, (laughs) isn't the whole point of marketing to basically get you to covet an iPhone that you don't presently possess or Mercedes Benz, etc. I mean, what would, how would we legislate, say, the 10th commandment? Is the government going to hook us all up to heart rate monitors (laughs) and determine when, you know, our hearts are palpitating uh, in in a certain way? Um, It's very difficult, isn't it? The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Well, that's a good idea. But do we really want the government enacting criminal charges for a man who uses a curse word against his father in a public fight? Or, last example would be the seventh commandment. Thou shall not commit adultery. I think every one of us would agree that no-fault divorce has been a disaster for the family. No-fault divorce laws have completely decimated the American family as we know it. But can any of us imagine going back to a time where if you divorce your spouse you're going to be punished by the state? It's, it's, very, isn't it? it's very hard to either imagine that or to turn back the tide of history to, to do that. And so the second use of the law, the civil use of the law in modernity is is rather complicated when you think about it. Um, so our branch of the church has, has had this position towards the law and the state. What we have said, Southern Presbyterians, that's kind of our tradition, what we have said is that Christians can disagree over public policy. We, we can all have different opinions on how the, the government should legislate, how much of the, the, gov- the government should legislate the Ten Commandments. But the church as an institution as a whole should not be in the business of telling the government how she should uh, legislate or how she should do her political solutions. So uh, our Presbyterian forefathers would have pointed to the New Testament for support on this. They would note that in the first century in the Roman Empire, there were a a great many number of grave social ills that the church could have spoken out against. I mean, they could have said something uh, in the New Testament about the Colosseum and uh, they, gladiators, and I mean a whole host of different things. But you go to the test New Testament, none of that's there. What, what the church does as an institution is tell its people to Romans thirteen: be good citizens. First Timothy two: pray for the emperor. First Thessalonians four: honor the emperor. 1 oh, Peter 2, 1 uh, Thessalonians 4, live quietly. And that's the role of the church is, is to speak to you as the individual citizens and tell you those things. And then you go out into the world and you advocate for, for political solutions as, as your Christian conscience you know, declares for you to do. Does that make sense? And that has been, that's been our history. Uh, on the whole, I agree with that. Where it gets a little tricky is, um, I mean, if the church says nothing, like say, take the church in Germany pre-World War II. If the church never says anything to the German government, doesn't it feel like the church has kind of sold out? Or you take what was true of our church, the Jim Crow South. If the church never says anything about Segregation, and we hardly ever say anything to our people about that if we 're completely quiet on all social issues um, that, that doesn't seem quite right, does it? And so yeah, all of that to say, I think it is it 's challenging it's it 's confusing. One more thing I want to say about the second use of the law before moving to the third, is oftentimes it is connected with what we call natural law. You may have heard people refer to the natural law before. And what they mean by that phrase is simply that the essence of the Ten Commandments is written upon every human heart. Every human conscience has inscribed on it industry, honesty, purity, love, love, fidelity. All human beings have an innate knowledge of their basic moral obligations. Like everybody knows murder is wrong. And oftentimes when we talk about natural law. It's like, let's find common ground with other people where we can all agree upon. We look inside, look at your conscience. Isn't this wrong? And we, we try to move forward on that common ground. Well, what's one of the problems with that in 21st century America today? Like, now, now we really don't agree on natural law. Like, we, really don't, we really don't agree that murder is, is wrong or this is murder. I mean, if I read, I'm probably going to get in trouble, but if I, making this maybe seem too political, but if I read the court case right, the Kansas Supreme Court just came out and said that the right to an abortion is a fundamental human right. Right? It is a fundamental in, inviolable human right to be able to do that. Well, man, we've gone, we've moved a whole, what, what has happened is as our, as our country's moral conscience has shifted, it becomes ever so difficult to find common ground on matters of natural law. And, and that's why we've, we're fighting over some of these very increasingly difficult things. Um, So, the third use of the law, which Calvin said the third use is the primary use of the law, and it's the Christian use of the law, and it's the use of the law we're going to largely focus on throughout the whole sermon series. And the money quote that I got from Kevin DeYoung uh, on his book on the Ten Commandments, he says, look, the Ten Commandments are not just they are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. No. They are rules for a free people to stay free. The Ten Commandments are not a way to get you out of Egypt. When did they receive the commandments? After they had already been let out of Egypt. You know, some people grew up with a Christianity that says, God has rules. I need to follow those rules. And if I follow those rules, God will accept me. But that is not how the Ten Commandments were even originally given to the children of Israel. It was God led them out of their bondage. And as a free people, he says to them, here's how I want you to live so that you live truly free. When you're saved, free, and forgiven, here's a new way I want you to live. And so in the same way, the law is given to a saved people, to us, to help us to do what we already want to do after we've been saved, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. If you want to know how to love God and love your neighbor, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, is a summary for how to do that. Most importantly... For us as Christians, we see the law fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus was the only man who kept all the Ten Commandments. He was the only man who did these completely. And we see in Christ what it's like to live out the commandments in their fullness. And I think that profoundly changes the way that we then see the commandments. And I'm hoping that over the course of the sermon series, I'll be able to bring that out. Let me conclude with a story. Alec Motier was one of the uh, most prominent Old Testament scholars of the 21st century. He was an Anglican. He's got a great commentary on the book of Isaiah. Well, Tim Keller, I think he was speaking at Alec Motier's funeral back in 2016. And he told a story of... Uh, being a kid who was right in between his undergraduate studies and going off to seminary. And he went, he was living in Pennsylvania. He drove over to the Ligonier Study Center that R.C. Sproul started in the middle of Pennsylvania to hear this British guy talk about the Old Testament. And he said, uh, this lecture that Alan McTeer gave just completely changed the way that I looked at the Bible. And he said this, as a fairly new Christian, I have to admit, I found the Old Testament to be kind of confusing and off-putting. Uh, I will, but I will always remember Motier's answer to a question about the relationship of the Old Testament and Israel to the church. After pointing out something that uh, along the lines of there are some discontinuities, he insisted that we are all one people of God. And then he asked us to imagine, what would, if you pass the mic... In Moses' day, if Moses took the mic and gave it to one of the people and said, give us your personal testimony, they would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, and under the sentence of death. But our mediator, Moses, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in those promises And we took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb and he led us out. Now we are on our way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us in its third use. And we also have uh, his presence in our midst. So we will stay, so he will, that is, God will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And Alamutier concluded uh, this this testimony by saying, now think about it, a Christian could say almost the exact same thing, word for word. Except no longer is it Moses, it is uh, our Savior Jesus. Keller goes on, my young self was thunderstruck. I had held a vague, unexamined impression that in the Old Testament, people were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, but that today they're freely forgiven and accepted by faith. This little thought experiment showed me, in a stroke, not only that the Israelites had been saved by grace, and that God's salvation had been by costly atonement and grace all along, but also that the pursuit of holiness, pilgrimage, obedience, and deep community should characterize us as Christians as well. Um, have you ever thought of it that way? It's very interesting. And, and they had the law, as, as sort of as a saved people. And we have the law, the third use of the law, as a saved people. They're very similar. Where I would want to quibble, where I will quibble with Tim Keller of all people. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often, does it? Where I will quibble, is that on this side of the cross and of the resurrection, the law is is different. Like after we have seen the law fulfilled by Jesus, after we have seen Jesus do the law, um, it's kind of like we are still, we're still playing from the same sheet of music. But uh, the analogy I like to use, it's like uh, it's been transposed to a different key. So it's the same melody that they're playing, the same piece of mu- music. But now that we've seen the law fulfilled by Jesus, the key signature is different. That we s- We're singing the same thing, but it's in a different, different octave, I think. Do you know what I mean? And I, as I said, I hope as we go through the sermon series, I'll be able to expand on that. Um, now that we see the law fulfilled in Christ, how then should we obey the Ten Commandments? That's where we're going to be going.